2: Welcome to Wednesday. This is the word to stand on for life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is a program, as I hope you know by now, dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, as well as questions about stuff going on in your life. Let's find out together what Jesus says that we ought to do or how we ought to respond. All we need you to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's three four zero ninety-five eighty-five. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call us toll-free at eight seven seven six three zero KSLR. Numerically at six three zero five seven five seven. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at CalvarySA.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And if you are in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, I'm excited. I I, I was just saying just before the program began, and I was thinking about last Wednesday. We didn't go on the air because it was like a billion degrees below zero. We'd gone home, Paul and I, from the hotel we were staying in, just to see. We were thrilled that we had electricity, but about this time is when the electricity went off, so we had to go back to the hotel room, and I was just thinking, what a much better week this is. So uh, we would love for you to call and participate in the program tonight. We've got our midweek Bible study uh, in the book of Genesis. We're going to close out uh, our study on Jacob's life uh, which means next weekend we get to start one of the most significant characters in all of Scripture, the life of Joseph. Uh, that will be next Wednesday night. Tomorrow, of course, is the date day show, so Paula will be live in the studio. And as I told you, another time that she had to miss, that uh, we haven't t- she hasn't talked in two weeks, so she's probably got a whole bunch saved up. So remember, ladies, This is a day especially for you. Um, Paula will be here live in the studio. Okay, let's get to some questions while we wait your phone calls. The first one comes from Dale. It Pastor Ron, when Jesus returns, will the whole nation of Israel be saved? Um, Dale, no. Now, the nation of Israel will be saved. I've got another uh, question about Jews being saved. Um, I I probably won't get to that one today. But uh, when Jesus returns... Uh, In the prophecy of Zechariah, we're told that one third of the Jews who are alive when Jesus returns, uh, destroying his enemies with the word, they'll be saved. One third. The sad news, Dale, is that means that two thirds of those people are not going to be saved. They're going to be stuck in unbelief. Uh, And, you know, we might think when, when a third of them can believe, what's with the other two thirds, especially when they see Jesus returning? Uh, in glory, you and I will be with him when he returns. Um, he'll destroy his enemies, and 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 you, what would keep them from believing? And I say this to our church here all the time: the more you persist in unbelief, or the more you persist in sin, the harder and harder your heart becomes. And Dale, unfortunately, when Jesus returns, um, there will be only a remnant, according to. Paul writing to the book or to the church at Rome. Um, he says, All Israel will be saved. There's a play in words. Israel means governed by God, and those whose hearts are really for the Lord, uh, they will be converted at that time. But no, um the the Jews will not be saved, but the nation of Israel will be saved or preserved, because that was always God's promise to Abraham, to David, to, to you and to me, Israel. Uh, has to be here when Jesus returns. So um, we needn't worry. The whole nation of Israel will be saved. But as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 11, not all Israel is Israel. In other words, not all people living in Israel is governed by God, which is what the the name Israel means. So Dale, I hope that answers your question. Um, Sad thing to think about, only a remnant. Jesus says... Speaking to Jews, he said, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? And he'll find some, but he won't find as much as he would like. Here is an anonymous question. that's actually just a statement. He said, I think the church should have been more influential in forming the way our nation has turned out. Uh, Anonymous, if you mean what I think you mean, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, The church in the United States of America has largely become impotent. And the reason we become impotent is that we've compromised our witness. We have turned church into a show. We're more worried about huge crowds and putting on good performances than we are of presenting a clear presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're unwilling in many churches to call sin, sin. Um, we, we don't want to make people uncomfortable. I was listening to a pastor uh, on on uh, online today and he was just talking about um, a, a pastor he knows that he was talking to uh, and, and he asked the question this guy's known as a seeker sensitive he said well, well well, how long would you let somebody come and sit in your church knowing they were in sin before you confronted with them And he said I don't know we don't really think about like maybe two years well that's a problem anonymous the church has to be holy in the first century, the church attracted people because of the love they had one for another, because of the love they had for their Jesus. People were committed they they left everything, whatever it cost them, it didn't matter to them. Whatever it cost them, they were willing to pay in order to be saved, and we've lost that sense of awe and and frankly, uh the church in the United States of America has failed so miserably. In rightly representing Jesus, that that we have become sort of a punchline in a joke. You know, unbelievers look at us and talk about all of the sin, the hypocrisy inside the church. Who would want a Jesus like that? So I agree with you. Um, um additionally, the church, especially in these last, I don't know, five or six years. So much of the church has been politicized. We've actually sent out a message, much of the evangelical church, that, you know, if you're a Democrat, we don't want you. If you don't believe what we believe, if you don't back who we, who we back, then, then you know, we don't think you can be saved. We don't think you should be saved. Again, anonymous, anytime we stop proclaiming Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead, when we stop making disciples, and part of making a disciple is 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 teaching them that, that, that we've got to walk in personal holiness. When we stop doing that, we lost our power. We can put on good shows. We can have good light shows. We can have great musical performances. We can move people emotionally. But if we want the Holy Spirit and His power to be manifest in the church, we've got to do things the way that God set him up for us to do. So I again if you think if you mean what I think you mean anonymous I could not agree with you more. I also think that this shouldn't surprise anybody not that the United States of America is sort of the center of God's universe. It's not Israel is and always will be. But we've lost our way. We've lost our way. We care more about people being here than we care about Jesus being here. I think of the church at Laodicea. Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock, which effectively means he's on the outside looking in. And Jesus wasn't welcome in that church. Let me give you one other thing to consider, Anonymous. There are still a lot of churches in this country. Some of them, big, big churches, who are closed, who aren't doing what Jesus told them to do. We've got a pastor. We talked about him yesterday in Alberta, Canada. We've got a pastor there who is sitting in jail. By the way, an update I got today was that his hearing is supposed to be tomorrow. And we here in the United States are closing our churches because we don't think it's that important. We don't think it's essential. So one of the things that we've got to really look deep inside, if we can close the churches effectively for a year, And next month, it will be a year. If we can close churches for a year and everything's okay, well, that tells you what the condition of the church in the United States is really about. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. We'd love to have them. Here's a question from Franklin. Actually, this is another statement. Franklin says... Uh, Pastor Ron Solomon worshipped false gods, yet some people say he was saved. I don't believe it. Um, Franklin, I'm one of those people who say that Solomon is saved. In fact, we know he is. Uh, And you're right, he did worship false gods. He allowed foreign women to come into his um, palace. He allowed them to bring their pagan gods with them. And even Solomon was led astray into the worship of some of those false gods. That's what a thousand women in your life will do. Um, but but see, here's the thing, Franklin, we have his testimony of repentance. God preserved it in the book of Ecclesiastes. Where Solomon basically repents. He says that everything that I chased, I, I, I withhold nothing. I chased anything and everything I wanted. I did what I want, when I wanted to do it. I did it the way I wanted to do it. I denied myself nothing. He was extravagantly wealthy. Uh, he had everything from a human perspective or worldly perspective that you could possibly imagine. Uh, and then at the end, as Solomon writes, Ecclesiastes, he's an older man. And he looks back and basically the whole theme of Ecclesiastes is it was all meaningless. The sum of the matter is that everything I did apart from God was meaningless. It had no value at all. And Ecclesiastes, as I said, is a book of repentance. So w- happily, Franklin, we will see Solomon in heaven. I am. Um, he's one of the people that I want to meet. Um, he's one of the people who tells us or testifies that it doesn't matter how smart we are. It doesn't matter how rich we are. Apart from God, there's an emptiness in our hearts. So Solomon will be in heaven. Thank you very, very much. Let's go to Converse and talk with Roosevelt on Line 1. Roosevelt, thanks for calling. You're on the air.
1: Thank you, uh, Pastor. Uh, I just wanted to ask a question that's been, and I've done some research on it. And the, the question is, what day is the Sabbath day? I know it's, uh, some uh, theologians say it was Saturday, and mm. you as Baptists call it Sunday, the Sabbath. And I have known, only found in in Genesis just one of the two little statements about the Sabbath, but it never said what day it was. I'm trying to find out if it was on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or if Saturday is is the only one. And I realize this is Old Testament Jews that, that yes. they we're talking about. And, uh, and, and I guess in the New Testament, we're talking basically about, uh, uh, you know, the way we do it now. So yeah. if, if you got anything you can help me with on that, a scripture scripture or something.
2: Thank you, Roosevelt. I can do that. Um, Roosevelt, the Sabbath, the original Sabbath, is the seventh day of the week, which is Saturday. Um, that was a Jewish Sabbath. It was a um, um, spill spelled out in in the law of Moses, and they were to keep the seventh day holy. Um, uh, that was the whole idea behind the original Sabbath. On the seventh day, God rested from his creation. He didn't rest because he wanted or needed to rest. He rested because he was setting that day apart. Now, remember that, that as you indicated, Roosevelt, God was speaking to Jews. It was a Jewish law, and they were the ones who were supposed to observe the Sabbath. We also want to remember that, that the early church for for several years was entirely Jewish. Until we get to Acts chapter 10, the church is entirely Jewish. And so the Jewish frame of reference of keeping the Sabbath holy, um, that would have carried over uh, into the first century church, or at least for part of the first century church. Additionally, um, Jesus was always being... Uh, persecuted Jesus was. They plotted his death because Jesus, in their view, in Jews' view, continually violated the law of the Sabbath. That was the the most serious charge against Jesus that he was desecrating the Sabbath. Now, of course, we know that he wasn't. Uh, he said the Sabbath. Uh, one of his points in teaching was that the Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath, and the Jews misunderstood that. Now, when it changed was in the first century church, when the church changed it. Now, remember, the church is under a new covenant. Uh, Jesus in the upper room. He said, this is the new covenant written in my blood, and, and in effect canceled the old covenant. So those who are now Christians, no matter their background, what they did was they changed the day of worship it's not can't can't practically be called a sabbath because what we do on a sunday certainly isn't observing a sabbath law but it's a day that we get together for corporate worship now uh, it's important roosevelt to know that eight in the bible is a number of new beginnings babies were to be male babies to be circumcised on the eighth day uh, it, it's it's a symbol of covenant relationship. It's a symbol of new life in Christ. Well, um, the the seventh day was Saturday. Then the, the the next day, the eighth day, would be a Sunday, and it was on Sunday, the day that celebrates the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that the first century church adapted. Not because they had to. It wasn't the law, but the first century church adapted to meeting together uh, corporately, breaking bread together. They would take the, 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 the first day of the week, and it was Jesus' day. And the the, the church, from that time, has honored the, the first day of the week, Sunday, as the day that we get together corporately. Now, go one step farther, Roosevelt. Paul, in speaking to the churches in Colossae, and in Galatia, both of them had tendency to be legalistic, and there are always Jews around who were saying, no, we have to worship the Sabbath, we have to be circumcised. And Paul's comment to them was, was, all days are Sabbath days. All days are days that we get together and we honor the Lord. Every day is the same. So there is no longer a special day. The custom has been, the tradition has been since the first century church that we get together on the first day of the week. And that's why we meet on Sundays. But there is no law, Roosevelt. You can worship the Lord anytime you want. Uh, the original intent of the Sabbath was a day of rest, a day to, to spend with the Lord, uh, developing a relationship. Jews mess that up. Uh, and, and unfortunately, a lot of times we're messing it up as well. So Roosevelt, thanks very much. I appreciate the call very, very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here uh, is a question from Brian. He said, last year, before and after the election, there seemed to be a lot of false prophets predicting things that were accepted by the churches. And then he says, how did we get there? You know, Brian, um, false prophets have been in the church from the very beginning. I mean, if you think about um, the, the the first church in the book of Acts, uh, Simon the Sorcerer was a false prophet. But but the, the, but the history of the church has been replete with false prophets uh, and false teachers. And um, so this isn't anything new. And, and in answer to your question, how did we get there? And I'm assuming you mean how did the church get to the point where we would accept false prophecies? Um, the, the truth is we, we've become biblically ignorant. Brian, all one has to do is read the New Testament, especially Ephesians, where Paul says there are no prophets. The Old Testament prophets and those like them are New Testament prophets. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, the prophet Agabus, the the, the daughters of Philip, were, were also, all four of them, were prophetesses. Uh, they didn't have a Bible. Paul said those prophets were given to the church As a foundation, along with the apostles, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, and that foundation has already been laid. By the time we got the canon of Scripture, we no longer needed anybody to come and say, Thus saith the Lord. Because we had the full and complete uh, canon of Scripture. We know exactly what God thinks. We know exactly what he says. The problem is that we have let experience, we have let goosebumps, we've let um, um, just... Uh, the whole sense of what we want matters, we've let all of that get to a place where we've become so biblically illiterate that we're open for anything. So Brian, yeah, there has been a lot of people predicting things and, and there's no reason anybody should listen to anybody. Whenever anybody says, uh, I'm a prophet or I have, God wants me to say something. Um, and and you can tell in the church culture that we live in that that happens in all kinds of charismatic churches, especially. Um, We've lost our way. So, Brian, you get your eyes off the Bible, then you lose sight of Jesus. When you lose sight of Jesus, believe me, the devil is going to have his men and women there to tell you what you want to hear, tickle your ears to, to, to put us in a position where we will believe anything. Often tell Paula that, if you don't believe what 's true, then you will believe anything is true and to our shame, Brian, we have all of these people who um, found a market and they continue to find a market to say anything and everything that people will buy into so that's my answer We're coming down to the first half of the program into the first half of the program um Diane says, what does one have to do to be blotted out of the Lamb's Book of Life? Um, Diane, if you're written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you will never be blotted out. I know you're you're thinking about the passage in Revelation where Jesus says, I will in no ways blot your name out. We automatically assume that because he says that, that means he necessarily blots some names out. But But that's exactly the opposite of what it says. Once your name is in the Lamb's book of life, it, it happens because you're born again. It happens because you've been regenerated. And because you're 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 new in Christ, sealed with the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance, there's nothing you can do to be blotted out of Jesus' book. It's just that simple. We need to truly understand that. I mean, Jesus wants us to enjoy our security. He wants us to enjoy peace. He wants us to live lives free of the worry of those kind of things. If you're worried about losing your salvation, my goodness, there's never any peace. And Jesus promised us his personal peace. So there's nothing you can do to be blotted out of the Lamb's Book of Life. Diane, you're hearing if you're born again, and clearly it seems you are and you're, you're hearing those, well, maybe you didn't make it, or maybe God's going to blot you out. That's not God, the Holy Spirit, speaking to you at all. That's the unholy spirit, and he's doing anything and everything that he can to get you to doubt your security in Christ. So please, 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 Diane, understand that God loves you. He sent his son to die for you. I sometimes wonder about Jesus and how it must hurt his heart after doing everything that he's done for us that we still doubt that the work he began will be accomplished. So Diane, you are safe and secure in your salvation. You're going to get home to heaven when the time is right and you don't have to worry about Jesus. There's no eraser. On Jesus's heavenly pencil, so your name will never be blotted out of the Lamb's Book of Life. Hope that makes sense. How am I doing on time? Oh, okay, just got one minute sign. Uh, here's what I can do quickly. Art says, if someone believes in word of faith teaching, does it imperil their salvation? Uh, if they're really saved, art it doesn't imperil their salvation. But what it really uh, in dangers is their their sanctification their walk by faith they 're never going to know who jesus is uh, they can be saved they can they can truly give their heart to him but whenever you' you're sitting under false teaching then then you simply can 't walk with jesus you don 't know who he is he 's a stranger i 'm going to come back to this one on the other side of the break we 've got thirty minutes left in the wednesday show three four zero ninety five eighty five or toll free eight seven seven six three zero KSLR. This is the word to send them for life. I'll be back in two minutes.
0: Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877 87-630-KSLR. Now here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
2: Welcome back to the second half of our Wednesday program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. I want to get back to Art's question for a moment. I, I I should never try to take a question with a minute left in the in the in the time um, Art asks if someone believes in the word of faith teaching does it imperil their salvation uh, art I know a lot of people who who were legitimately saved in what you're calling word of faith um, churches um, It's heretical um, but 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 people don't know it I myself. Uh, when I first got saved, the biggest problem I had with my life falling apart was money. At least I thought that was, big, was the biggest problem. And there were people on Christian radio and Christian television telling me God wants me to be rich. I, I found those churches. But there was just some something hollow in the teaching, and I just knew it wasn't true. Even now, to this very day, when people will say things to me like, well, you know it's never God's will that anybody's sick. They just don't get it, and they've been so influenced by this false teaching. And, and what happens is they never know who Jesus really is. Imagine the Apostle Paul dealt with physical problems that Jesus didn't heal him from. I think Paul had great faith. Epaphras nearly died in his service for the Lord. We have a whole church history filled with martyrs. If God only wants us to be rich and healthy, I call it healthy, wealthy, and wise, well, well then those things wouldn't happen. And so people in those churches uh, sometimes truly are saved. They've had an encounter with Jesus Christ. Um, but, but if they stay there, um, the, the sad news is that they, they never really learn to grow in their faith. They can say all the right things, but they never really learned to grow in their faith. A, a friend of mine, a, another pastor in town, was telling me about a, a couple that came to his church, and they were really excited, and and they were serving, and they were friendly, and, and an older couple, and they were really happy to have them there. And then one day they just came and left, and it was because he taught a message that that indicated that that um, you know sometimes people get sick and they die. Sometimes God doesn't deliver us. In fact, most times God doesn't heal us miraculously or God doesn't bless us with winning lottery numbers. And they left the church. And so now they're going to go find a church that's going to teach them what they want to hear and they're never really going to get to know who Jesus is. And and the problem then, of course, is you're not really following Jesus. So are they saved? I, I think so. But what they're missing out on is the abundant life that Jesus promised it's not the fake abundant life. It's, it's the, the abundance that comes from being in, in, in close fellowship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's the abundance that comes from having your heart focused on the things that his heart is concerned about. It's about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control. It's not about money. It's not about health. So maybe it doesn't imperil their salvation, but as I said at the end of the last half hour, it certainly imperils their sanctification. They never really learn who Jesus is, and that's that's a real tragedy. The real Jesus art is more than enough. We sing a song like that. He's more than enough, and they never learn that. Here is another anonymous question. He says I or she says I don't know. I've tried to stop a specific sin in my life and cannot do it. Is my heart beyond saving? Uh, anonymous, here's the thing, and I, I want, I hope you get this nuance. Um, You'll never be able to stop sinning if you're the one who's making the effort instead of letting God do it for you. See, here's where real faith comes in. Do you really believe that what Jesus said is true in His Word? That you're no longer a slave to sin. Do you really believe 1 Corinthians 10.13 that says that, that no temptation seized you except that which is common to man and God is faithful. He won't let you to be tempted beyond what you can bear and he'll provide a way out. Do you believe that? You see, the whole idea is that, that you've got to stop trying and let Jesus' power, the power that raised Christ from the dead that lives in you, Let his power do the work that you can't do. The truth is, whether it's you, Anonymous, or me, we don't want to stop sinning. My flesh loves to sin. But the spirit in me, the new life that I've been given in Christ, well, I want to be close to Jesus. And whenever you're trying in your own strength to quit doing something that you know God doesn't want you to do, then you're missing the point. What you have to do is surrender. Jesus, I can't do this. I've promised you a thousand times that I can't stop it. Can you be honest enough, Anonymous, to say, I don't want to stop it, Jesus, so I need you to take over? Now that doesn't mean that he's going to stop the temptation. It doesn't mean that He's going to prevent the enemy from coming, planting the ideas in your head and in your heart over and over and over again. But here's what He does promise. He promises that He'll give you the tools to fight, to win. That you will be an overcomer. And not to understand that is to live a defeated life. So stop trying and letting God do the work. Instead of focusing on the sin, I don't want to do it, I don't want to do it, I don't want to do it. Instead, focus on Jesus. Every time the temptation comes, have a Bible with you and open it up, wherever you're doing, whatever you're doing. Open the Bible and start reading it. If you're at work and you can't do that, well, you can pray while you work. So the minute the temptation comes, or the enemy brings those thoughts to mind and heart, then begin praying for other people. You see, the enemy doesn't want you letting Jesus do the fighting. He's trying to get you to be completely defeated, and that's where he's got you. So, no, even the fact that you want to stop, it indicates that your heart belongs to Jesus. But you got to learn how to fight. You got to learn to take thoughts captive. The enemy, as I said, isn't going to stop bringing those ugly thoughts. You've got to take those thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. That's your part, is just choosing to let God do his work in you. I realize, and I've been a Christian now for 30 years, a pastor for 25 years. I never say to God, I'm going to stop doing this. If I know I've done something that displeases Jesus, I just say, Jesus, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. And then by faith, I know the strength lives in me to overcome this temptation. So, Anonymous, open your Bible. Read the New Testament promises. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It doesn't say you can do all things through you. Let His power work in you and through you. Sin shall no longer be your master. The King James says, sin shall no longer have dominion over you. In other words, if sin is in control, then you're quenching the work the Holy Spirit wants to do. We're not slaves to sin. We're slaves to righteousness. Read the book of Romans. Believe the promises. Die to yourself. And live for Jesus. Here is a question from Raymond. He says, Pastor, and how could Jesus die if he was God? Because God can't die. So that means, in my mind, that something's wrong in believing that Jesus was both God and man. Raymond, this is hard. The, the kenosis of Jesus is is he had two natures. Uh, he had a sin nature. Or, I'm sorry, not a sin nature. He had a, 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 a human nature and he had um, 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 and he was God. He was both things. He was 100% of both things. Now, the problem was, I, I, I slipped and said he had a sin nature. He, he's the only human who's never, who was ever born that didn't have a sin nature. That's why he was born of a virgin. He, he didn't have a human father. If he did, he would have inherited a sin nature. Um, but Jesus was both man and God. You're right that God cannot die. But Jesus in his humanity died because a man has to die for the sins of mankind. And that sacrifice, of course, had to be a perfect sacrifice, and only Jesus was. So the man Jesus physically died. But Jesus, who is the Son of God and God the Son, never died. While well, he was here on earth in his humanity. Jesus veiled his deity. He didn't do anything under his own initiative. He only did what he saw his father do and only said what he heard his father say. Everything was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus willingly, not eagerly, but willingly, went to the cross to die for our sins. And if Jesus didn't die, then we're all lost in our sins. But Raymond is, you know, if I say he's 100% man and 100% God to us, that adds up to 200%. But this was um, exactly what happened when Jesus took on human form. In his incarnation, Jesus became a man just like us, but he was also God, unlike us in that he had no sin nature. So God didn't die. Jesus the man did in his human nature. I hope that makes sense to you, Raymond. Julie asked a tough question for me. What do you think about pastors who make way more money than most of the people in their churches? Um, Julie, I think it's wrong. Um, I think it's a source of, um, or it ought to be a source of shame for a lot of us. I think it's pastors that we're called to serve others. Now, I don't think pastors ought to live at the poverty level. Um, our rule of thumb has always been here that the the pastors uh here ought to live sort of at the median level of the people uh who come to our church When pastors are living extravagant lives or living in in gated communities or or uh, living in, in in a lifestyle that uh is extravagant i i honestly don't know why anybody would listen to us any longer we talk about them making sacrifices, we talk about them serving, uh, and yet these pastors who make all this money in the churches are often the ones who insist on being served themselves by the people in the church, and it just ought not to be that way. So, I, I don't, I, you know, I don't know exactly who you're talking about specifically, but the sad truth is, and this happens even among people I call friends, um, they just make too much money. Uh, I think at some point we stop becoming a servant. And Julie, when we do that, I think we we lose the power that God wants us to have. So um, that's the the nicest way I can put it. Uh, I I think it's an embarrassment um, that some pastors um, make the amount of money that they make. I can tell you that at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, that's certainly not the case. Uh, money is not why we do anything here. And in fact, everything that we do here is free. So uh, believe me, nobody's getting rich here at our church. I would ask a pastor that question who makes a lot of money and then uh, judge his answer um, by the word of God. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Uh, Gladys wants to know what happens to animals when they die. Um, Gladness when animals die because they are not made in the image of God because they don't have souls they just cease to be. They live and then they die. Uh, There's no dog heaven. There's no dog hell. They just cease to live. Um, You know that said I'm a dog guy. Uh, Paul and I told the story before we had a, a, a wonderful dog a big dog but he was just the best dog. We called him an evangelist dog. He just, We loved him. Um, but he was God's gift to me. He was just a blessing. And God gives us these wonderful gifts um, to enjoy. Uh, and then instead of enjoying them, we get mad when, when there's no promise that they're going to go to heaven. I promise you, Gladys, when you get to heaven, you won't miss anything. Because your animals aren't there, only man was made in the image of God. Uh, that is, we will live forever. We have the capacity to choose. A dog doesn't have a capacity to choose. a cat doesn't have a capacity to choose. Um, so animals, when they die, they just die. They stop existing and and then uh, typically we go get our new dog but but they won't be in heaven, Gladys, they won't be in heaven. William says, um, I know Christians don't believe in evolution, but science proves it's true. How do you interpret Genesis 1 and 2 in view of scientific evidence? You see, William, here's the thing. Um, The theory of evolution or the theory of the Big Bang, all those things are just that, theories. And all of those theories are born from one false premise and that premise is that there is no God. Now it's really simple. In the beginning, God. First four words of the Bible. That explains everything. In the beginning, God. How do we get uh, an earth? How do we get people? How do we get um, um, the the universe? God made everything that was made. That God was Jesus Christ. He was the agent in, in making everything that was made, and that's what the Bible declares clearly. Now, when you say science has proved it, how many times since Darwin, how many times has the theory of evolution changed? Why is it that we completely ignore the fact that Darwin himself said that if we don't find the missing link between species by a certain time, and I don't remember the date, that he said that, that if we don't find that missing by then, then then my theory falls apart. Where's the scientific evidence of evolution? Jesus believed that Genesis one and two were real and literal. I don't know, William, if this is in response to the question they got yesterday about do I really believe that Adam and Eve were the first two real people? The answer is, yeah, I believe it. I believe it because Jesus believed it. And here's the thing, William. Um, it, It appears that you're not a Christian. You need to open your Bible, go to the end of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, take a trip to the tomb where Jesus was buried, and if there's not a body in that tomb, and the evidence is overwhelming. You want to talk about real evidence? The evidence is overwhelming. If there's no body in that tomb, and we know that Jesus was a real historical person, we know that he died. Again, the evidence is overwhelming. We also know that he didn't stay dead. If that's true, then you've got to deal with an empty tomb. And if the man who rose from the dead, from that tomb, believed that Adam and Eve were first, if he believed in the beginning God, if in fact Jesus, according to John 1, made everything that was made, he's holding all things together. Science wasn't there to observe that. Science can't prove it. And what scientists have done, William, is they've come up with theories to explain away a God who they don't want to believe in. So, William, don't worry about what Christians believe or don't believe. Find out what's true. And if you really want to look at evidence, if you really want to look at evidence, do it honestly, intellectually, honestly. Open your Bible and let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart. So I interpret Genesis 1 and 2 literally. I do it because Jesus did. And he'll show you as well. Here's the real problem, William. And I don't know you, so don't take this personal. This is true of everybody who rejects Jesus Christ, including the scientists who start out on the premise of there is no God. Truth is, they don't want to stop sinning. They're doing things that they know are wrong, and they don't want to stop doing it, so they just explain away God. That's been the reason people reject Jesus Christ from the very beginning, and it is the only reason. It's not because there isn't evidence. As I said, the evidence for an empty tomb is overwhelming. It's because they don't want to stop sinning. They don't want somebody telling them what to do. They want to exercise control of their lives instead of understanding that they don't have any control over life. 340-9585 Joshua says, "How can it be said that we are sinners? How can it be said that we are sinners even before we sin? When does the soul of a person become sinful?" Um, Joshua, David, in in his inspired Psalm fifty one, surely I was sinful at birth. He says, "God, you 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 knit me together in my mother's womb. You knew me in my mother's womb." Before I ever did anything, so make it. I want to make it clear: we're not sinners until we sin. But we are born with a sin nature, which in some cases makes it impossible for us not to sin. That doesn't mean sin can control us, but sin is what we do. You know, if you've got a a baby Joshua in your life, you know they're a sinner. As soon as you get them home from the hospital, as they grow up a little bit, the minute they 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 learn the word mine, we know we have proof that they're sinners. Babies are dictators. Babies are tyrants. They want what they want when they want it. It's because they've got a sin nature. Or they're they're selfish. Babies are all about themselves. So so we shouldn't be surprised when we said that we're born with a sin nature. Jesus, of course, is the answer to that sin nature. When we come to faith in Christ, we receive a new nature. So it's not that the soul of a person or the spirit, soul and spirit are are interchangeable. It's it's not that the soul becomes a sinner. It's born that way. That's just who we are. Kids lie. We were watching, Paul and I were watching um, an episode of America's Funniest Home Videos. And there's kids that, that mom will look right at them and say, did you get into this, some some dessert or something They told them not to touch? And they say, no, no. And, and I mean, they'll they'll die lying about it. And their face is covered with the stuff that they said they didn't touch. So sin is instinctive. John chapter 3 says that we are condemned already. Joshua, I hope that answers your question. Here's the last one of the day. This one is from Janet. She says, how do we know that the Bible is the authoritative source about God? Um, Janet, my answer to this question, um, or how can we depend on the Word of God, is never satisfying to people. Uh, I know it is, uh, but I know it is because I, I dug in to find out. This is something you've got to resolve for yourself. If you want to know if the Bible is the authoritative source about God, uh, then you got to find out. You've got to let the Holy Spirit change your heart. you got to open your Bible with an open mind and let God prove to you that the Bible is literally his word. It's not a book of stories. It's not a book of good principles. It is the very word of God. You can go on the internet. You can find people that are trying to explain it away calling themselves Christians. But the truth is you've got to do this. This is your individual charge. You've got to find out for yourself. And if it's not important enough for you to do, then me answering the question isn't going to be enough. Now, I can tell you, yes, we've got a manuscript evidence. We've got archi- uh, agricultural and architectural evidence. Um, we've got prophetic evidence. The Bible is the only book that tells the future and it's told the future with absolute perfect precision from the very beginning. And then of course we've got the spiritual evidence. We see uh, countless billions of lives in 2000 years changed. Jesus impacted this world, um, uh, more than any human being who's ever lived. And unless you really want to open your heart and find out if it's true, God will show you. Uh, Janet, when I was a new believer, I was very curious. And I had all kinds of questions. And and um, every time I'd ask a question, Christians would answer, with, well, the Bible says. And it didn't make sense to me how the Bible could be written by God and written by men. So I made it the one goal of my life at that point to find out if this really was the Word of God or just a book took me about three months, and God showed me I've never had any doubt since that time, almost 30 years ago. Hey, that's the end of the show today. Remember, Paula will be live in studio tomorrow on the day-to-day edition of the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. May the Lord bless you and keep you. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye.